This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're glad you could join us again today. Uh, you know, in the corporate world, the sport of golf serves not only as a social outing, but as a way to make business connections and really to network with clients on the course. But pesticides used on golf courses may be causing potential danger to those who step on the fairways and greens. And today on Ringler Radio, we're going to take a look at how pesticides used on golf courses could potentially be a danger to those who love the sport of golf. And we're going to find out what's being done to find a safer alternative. And joining us today to talk about all this is Jay Feldman, Executive Director of Beyond Pesticides. Jay has a 30-year history of working with communities nationwide on toxic policies and safe management strategies that avoid reliance on toxic chemicals. He's dedicated himself to finding solutions to pesticide problems after working with farm workers and small farmers through an EPA grant back in 1978. And since that time, he's helped build Beyond Pesticides to assist local groups and impact national pesticide policy. He's also been involved in the creation of the Golf and the Environment Initiative, attending that first meeting out in Pebble Beach, and uh, really every summit since then, Jay. Welcome yeah. to Ring the Radio. Thank you so much, Larry. Glad to be here. Well, uh, having uh, your meetings out in Pebble Beach isn't a bad thing, is it? No, not a bad thing. Um, a little frustrating for a non-golfer, <laughs> but well, uh, sort of lost on me, but beautiful surroundings, and I think an increasingly high commitment to the environment. So that's what we're here to talk about. Interesting. Well, let's start the show by talking about how you got involved in this specialized area of expertise. Yeah. How'd you get involved in all this, especially as a non-golfer? Yeah. Well, you know, when you're looking at the question of pesticide use and impacts on health and the environment, you really can't miss talking about golf. And Obviously, Beyond Pesticides was established to look at the impacts of our chemical use, our 5 billion pounds of pesticides a year that are used in this country, and assess the, the impact of, of those chemicals, review the regulatory system. Are we doing an adequate job of protecting people, health of our families, of our community, uh, of our waterways, air we breathe, the food we eat? And then, really, as you said in the intro, looking for solutions. You know, what are viable methods for managing our home lawns, managing food production, um, and schools and hospitals, all the places where pesticides are used for a variety of reasons. So when you look, at, you, look uh, you know, over the landscape, what's going on with pesticides, you should really can't miss uh, pesticides uh, as an issue on golf courses mm -hmm. because... Essentially, the concentration of use on golf courses is much higher than even much of agriculture in the U.S. I mean, we're using between four, seven, four to seven pounds per acre in golf course management of pesticide use. 
If you compare that to a soybean field or a corn field, we're down around three or four pounds per acre. So that's uh, um, those are st- okay. those are statistics that a lot of us aren't aware of, but uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we yeah. go along here. You know, Jay, golf has become, as you know, an essential means of making connections with clients. And uh, I know I've personally met yeah. a lot of I've met a lot of great clients in the woods while searching for lost golf balls. As a matter of <laughs> fact, but let's let's talk about the pesticides that are used on golf courses, uh, particularly something that we don't really think about as we play as golfers. What chemicals are in these pesticides that we're not aware of? Well, when we talk about pesticides, first of all, we're talking about a range of chemicals that are used to kill insects. They're used to kill weeds, which are really unwanted plants. They're used to uh, kill fungus or fungal diseases. And pesticides really are the term, is an umbrella term for all those sides, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, and even rodenticides, uh, chemicals that uh, are targeting rodents for rodent management. And in that context, you know, we're using a range of highly toxic materials. I mean, their, their, their purpose is to kill. And a lot of the impacts they have by virtue of their characteristics to kill uh, specific targets, whether it's an insect or a weed, are very similar. Those target effects are very similar in the human population. I'm sorry, what can happen to a golfer, Jay, on the golf course well, if those so, pesticides you know, are there? Yeah, I mean, a, a, an effect ranges from a neurological impact, mm-hmm. affects your nervous system. I mean, something as simple as a headache or a rash, which we don't necessarily associate with chemical exposure, can be caused by a pesticide and often is. Um, it's, a, it's a neurological effect. It depresses uh, an enzyme in our body, cholinesterase, which triggers nerve impulses in our body, and that sets off and triggers effect, uh, a series of neurological effects, which can, you know, can range. A lot of pesticides today are being uh, closely tied to Parkinson's disease, which would, you know, if you looked at the spectrum of neurological effects and diseases, that would be on the, the outer spectrum, of course. But there are a lot of idiopathic diseases, neurological diseases, that are really not well-defined by neurologists. And so when you're dealing with an environment in which there are a high number of neurotoxic chemicals being used, you, you know, you've got to wonder. You've got to really, you know, be concerned about that. Now, we're not just talking about neurological disease. We're talking about cancer. Right. We're talking about immune system effects. I mean, let's take cancer alone. I mean, one of the major, the, the, perhaps the major impetus for the Golf Course Superintendents of America to, to look at all these issues occurred back in the mid-90s before we had that summit that you referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, an article had come out, and this was this was an article that, that came out of uh, University of Iowa Medical School, in which um, you know a study revealed that golf course superintendents suffered way elevated rates of brain cancer, prostate cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, large uh, intestine uh, cancer. And so when we looked at these numbers, and when the golf course superintendents looked at these numbers, they said, well, wait a minute, this is, this is something serious that we need to really dig into. The other issue, of course, are environmental effects. You know, mm-hmm. you've asked about impacts on health of the, of the golfer, 
there are also a series of environmental impacts, water in particular, and we're seeing all kinds of contaminants of pesticides that are used on golf courses showing up in waterways and in groundwater and in drinking water. And I'm not saying golf is the only reason for right. this, obviously. There's, a, there's overall poundage. You know, earlier I mentioned poundage per acre on a golf course being higher than poundage on a, per acre on a soybean field. But when you look at overall poundage, volume of use across the United States, certainly the vast majority of pesticides are used in agriculture today. Right. But from a golfer perspective, you know, if we're out there on the golf course, we're being exposed to a higher level of pesticide than either a, an individual farmer might be exposed to just because of the concentration of use. Well, let me, so, let me, let me stop you there and, talk, yeah. and ask you about uh, some of the more specific diseases and effects yeah. that pesticides can have uh, that are being claimed. For sure. example, for example, there's a there seems to be today uh, an epidemic of asthma in America. Yeah. Uh, kids are coming down with it, and, and, and even adults, and also endocrine disruptions as, as well. What what have you found? Uh, is there any linkage between pesticides? And I'm not so I'm, I'm not so sure. We're talking just about golf courses here, but pesticides yeah. and the uh, higher incidence of asthma in America. Yeah. You know, a lot of these chemicals are res- what we call respiratory toxicants. So they impact the respiratory system, and and whether the pesticide actually initiates a cancer effect or promotes an effect um, is is still being debated in the scientific community. But there are studies that basically say in young children and households where pesticides are used, there are elevated rates of asthma and respiratory diseases, and that, that these are often triggered by these pesticides. But whether they're actually created, whether the chemical initiates the disease or whether it uh, elevates the disease once one gets it, uh, is really... You know, it's an interesting scientific question, but from the standpoint of individuals who, as you say, are already have asthma, it seems to be pretty clear that pesticide, especially those identified as uh, respiratory toxicants, uh, that the disease is exacerbated by pesticide exposure. You know, it's interesting. You're raising a question, especially in the area of endocrine disruption, that sort of links us back to what we do and don't know about chemicals that are in such widespread use. And these, you've touched on two areas where the regulatory system is really limited or flawed in fully evaluating these effects, these very critical effects, given the fact that we've identified a public health threat in our country. I mean, you're right. The the rates of asthma are extraordinarily high, and they're growing every year. So the question then is, how do these chemicals get on the market without being fully tested? Um, and the reality is, as we watch Congress make law, we're, we're all aware that there's uh, often we're playing a game of catch-up. That is, chemicals are allowed to be marketed, and then years later we say, well, wait a minute, we should do a better job of regulating this industry. And then we try to put things in place and grandfather in the existing chemical uses and then go through a process of reevaluation, or what what's called at EPA the re-registration of these chemicals. These this area of endocrine disruption, which 
for the listeners, um, is an extraordinary area because it defies classical toxicology. You know, you've explain, heard the explain, that endocrine. Makes the poison. Explain endocrine uh, disruption. Explain. Well, the endocrine dis- system is really the message system of our body. So it defines our growth, our development. It defines our vulnerabilities to disease, um, and it's it's controlled by a very delicate balance of hormones in the body. And these are chemicals, many of these pesticides, that mimic hormones. Or so they're 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 mimics. Uh, the body treats them as a hormone, and that hormone being misinterpreted when the body absorbs it uh, can trigger reactions that are really devastating. I mean, one of the major reactions that we see in young children <clears throat> is sex determination. I mean, it, you get hit with uh, hormonal imbalance at the wrong time, or the body misinterprets that hormone in a hormonal a hormone receptor at the wrong time during development, it can determine the sex, literally, of the organism that's developing. But beyond that, which is a pretty dramatic effect, um, there are vulnerabilities to cancer later in life. And so here what we're talking about is not necessarily dose. Quite the contrary. It can be timing of exposure at really minuscule doses, below that which EPA really evaluates. So back in 1996, Congress passed amendments to our federal pesticide law and said, let's uh, go back and reevaluate these chemicals uh, for endocrine disruption and tasked EPA with going to uh, back to the drawing boards here and developing protocol for evaluating uh, the impacts of endocrine disruption. So here we are. That was 1996. Here we are over a decade later, and we haven't yet put in place that protocol to evaluate these chemicals for endocrine disruption. Meanwhile, I, I, I'll, I'll let you stop me here in a minute, but <laughs> meanwhile, the European Union has identified dozens of endocrine disruptors in Europe uh, that it has begun to regulate, and we are still developing the protocol to begin the regulatory process. Well, you know, you've, you're, you're talking about a lot of the science that's going on and some of the research that's going on. Yeah. And and in a way, it's not too dissimilar from how the pharmaceutical industry deals with some of the, their issues, that uh, products are developed, they go on the market, things are found out that uh, were yeah. anomalies, and then there's corrections. And then ultimately, out of all that, is litigation. And uh, that's, oh, yeah. what, that's what our audience is probably more concerned about at this point. Now that we are understanding that pesticides and the chemicals and the effects uh, are there and out there, uh, what are the uh, you know what are the potential litigation issues that are going to arise? So my question to you would be: uh, Obviously, these golf courses by putting pesticides on their property, uh, potentially, in your opinion, I, w- I would ask, would they be subjected to uh, potential lawsuits if people come down with some of these uh, diseases that you're talking about? And if that's the case. And I think you've spelled it out as well. Isn't the uh, real problem here the issue of proof? How do you prove the connection with asthma? How do you prove the connection with some of these other diseases? Tell us about the litigation arena. Yeah, you're raising a, a key issue and one that's very variable uh, depending on the chemical involved. I mean, there are 
chemicals that leave a pretty clear trail. You know, we we know that they're used, they're found in the body, they are, residues can be found on your clothing, you can tie that back to a use pattern uh, on perhaps a golf course or home, wherever, um, and the scientific literature is, is relatively clear um, about the, the connection to the the disease that an individual may come down with. And so, you know, in, historically we have seen successful litigation on uh, chemicals that, for instance, are in the organochlorine family. These are chlorine-based chemicals that have long residual lives. They bioaccumulate in the environment. Uh, if you if you used it years ago, it's now banned or withdrawn from the market, but if you used it in your home as a termite insecticide, you could pretty well, through air testing and swab samples on surfaces, identify the the residue in in that uh, building. But the so so someone comes down with uh, blood disease or cancer, uh, expert witness gets on the stand and basically links that effect that disease to that exposure. And there had there was a lot of successful litigation in that in that area. Obviously, it's difficult when you move outside the home because we are exposed to a toxic soup. Uh, you know that one of the things that, e- that the National Academy of Sciences is that EPA does a very poor job of is evaluation of mixtures of chemicals. And it's not just the additive effect of those chemicals; it's the potential synergistic effects. And so, it's really difficult once you get into the area of mixtures to to tie it back to an individual exposure to uh, an individual chemical. But but it's done. It's done. It, it you know through effective investigation and tracing back use patterns by by individuals who are who are exposed. It's a it's a fascinating area. You know the Supreme Court looked at this question because many of those who find themselves on the defense side of the table have claimed preemption mm-hmm. uh, by federal law. The registration of pesticides they claim preempted any toxic tort litigation against their companies, and the Supreme Court in Bates uh, v. Dow Agrosciences uh, ruled uh, back in 2000, what was that, 2005, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it was. That, you know, the federal law did not preempt um, these types of cases. And this was a case where there was an, you know, adverse property damage associated with the use of a, of a, I believe it was an herbicide used by uh, some tox, some peanut farmers in Texas, and they said, "Hey, we use the product according to the label. It damaged our crops, and you know we suffered economic harm." The Dow came in and basically said, "Well, you know that's not our fault. We registered the pesticide with EPA, and you know there were some conflicting decisions at the lower court level, and then at the Supreme Court, they basically found for the farmers and said, "No, in fact." Uh, uh, compliance with the federal law does not excuse uh, you from claims for adverse impact, in this case, property damage. So, you know, whether that opens the floodgates and allows people to um, to sue, you know, is still up in the air because it, it takes a lot of investment uh, on the part of those who want to sue. Well, it's very costly. It's, we, we know it's costly. And, and it's you know, costly. There was a, there was a story in Golf Digest uh, some some time back about a thirty year old naval officer who 
I think he played golf for three straight days in uh, back in the eighties and developed yes. rashes and kidney failure and eventually died and brought some brought an action. What what do you know about that case? Well, I I got to know uh, the widow in that case, Liza Pryor, who had you know lived a life in you know with a husband who was a decorated Navy pilot, you know, very adept in his field, very respected. As you say, he was on vacation and literally playing golf every day, you know, on his days off. I mean, you know, those who play golf know that uh, once you you get uh, addicted to it, it's hard to shake it. So he he was one of those, right? And he, he, um, unfortunately had, you know, basically uh, a disease that, uh, where his skin ended up just like a burn victim peeling off of his body, and they were just scratching their heads over what was going on with this guy. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind here is this was a perfectly healthy individual who was, you know, in a profession that required uh, a high degree of health and maintenance of health and monitoring of health. So he had very good health records, and and he was a healthy individual. Because he was uh, in the armed services, they wanted to know what was going on. So, you know, one might ask, well, why isn't this happening to other people? Well, we don't know. But in this case, because he was in the armed services, they did extraordinary evaluation of the site. They did infrared photography, photo. You know, they evaluated his clothing, they looked at the residues, and the Army pathologist that did the work in this case concluded that his death and and these diseases he suffered were uh, caused by uh, the pesticide. Now, was that proven in court? Well, we don't really know because this ended up being settled out of court. Okay. And, you know, the, the... Findings were closed and all that, so we end up with um, a settlement of significant uh, proportions. We don't know the exact number, but mm-hmm. um, Liza became very active in uh, our organization after she learned more and more about, you know, what was going on in this whole area. This, mm-hmm. this, the questions that we raised earlier. You know, mm-hmm. the deficiency in the regulation, the the lack of attention to potential impacts by those who are manufacturing um, uh, many of these products. And, you know, as a, as a individual who was personally touched in such a horrific way by these deficiencies, she has really committed her life since then to trying to right these wrongs and support efforts like ours mm-hmm. uh, to shift our whole orientation, whether it's golf, or it's the management of termites in our homes or our home garden or the food we buy or the, you know how the schools are managed that we send our children to, to try to shift all those practices in those different venues to you know, alternatives that don't rely on these hazardous chemicals, Well, that's, that's which is a good news story here. It's a very good news story, and yes. uh, it's also a cautionary tale, that whole, that whole uh, unfortunate event that took place. Yes. Even though we don't know the result li- from a litigation standpoint because, yeah. of, because of the settlement, we certainly can take stock and, uh, and be, be careful going forward. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and when we come back, we'll have uh, more on this fascinating subject with uh, Jay Feldman. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio. 
legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio. From Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years, and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Well, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you joined us. I'm joined today by Jay Feldman, Executive Director of Beyond Pesticides. And we're talking about a very fascinating subject about the effect of pesticides on the environment specifically on golf courses, but uh, also on the, the way that these pesticides uh, potentially could be causing uh, disease and, and, and other issues in the, uh, in, in the environment and also with uh, humans. Well, you know, Jay, it all comes down to balance, um, doesn't it? I mean, there, for example, there are mosquitoes out on golf courses. We'll use that as an example. They need to be controlled. Uh, we know they're disease spreaders. They're annoying uh, and all of that. And yet... How those mosquitoes are controlled uh, is really the focus of what you're talking about. Yes. What does how does a golf course superintendent who has a membership that says get these mosquitoes out of here? Yeah. How does he deal with that from your perspective without using the kinds of pesticides that are potentially going to be harmful to the membership? Well, this is key. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, when we're talking about it, insects like mosquitoes, it's a community-wide issue. You know, if, if I've got a golf course um, that's sitting in a community where we don't have good management strategies for preventing the breeding, for instance, of mosquitoes, which is really the key, uh, any mosquito manager will tell you the best way to manage a mosquito is to prevent their breeding. So you've got to identify the breeding sites and you, you know, you can eliminate those sites if it's standing water that can be eliminated, or you can use larval controls, which don't end up putting chemicals into the air that we breathe. So that, that approach has been used quite successfully in, in a range of, of areas. When you shift that same question to, you know, I want my golf course to look a certain way, and we have you as a superintendent to make sure that happens and that our golf course looks like Augusta, Right. Then you've got an issue of educating the golfers to work with the superintendent on a plan and a strategy that gets the course to the level that is acceptable to everyone in a in a in a way that doesn't pollute either the environment in which that golf course operates or the people that use the golf course. And in that respect, there are a number of techniques, you know, that are being used successfully by a number of golf courses in terms of cultural practices, uh, the seed varieties that are chosen, the, you know, the techniques that are used in terms of managing the turf, the types of fertilization techniques using composted materials as opposed to synthetic fertilizers, which only kill benefit.
beneficial microorganisms in the soil, the types of watering techniques and mowing techniques. I mean, these are the specifics that have been incorporated into courses that have dramatically reduced chemical use and, in many cases, eliminated uh, these uses. Um, are there going to be some differences uh, between that type of course and Augusta? Probably. Uh, where will those differences be uh, felt? Maybe in the speed of the game. Um, maybe in some fungal diseases that won't affect the speed, but may affect the aesthetics uh, of the course. Maybe the roughs will look a little different, or the fairways. But these are the types of discussions that need to go on, and the, the clubhouse, the folks that sort of run the course, you know, need to own this. It, it can't be a situation where the, the superintendent is out there on his own or her own, basically making decisions that the golfers then turn around and don't accept. And we see a lot of that. This is a, a, an industry that where superintendents are under a lot of pressure to meet certain standards that really aren't very realistic. And in, in trying to meet those standards, they go for the pesticide. It's the easy fix. Um, they've got a lot of support from the chemical industry. They haven't been trained in many cases in some of these alternative approaches. And so unless we see a change in, in golfer attitude and direction, um, you know, we won't see this change overall. Now, there's good news in all of this because, you know, if you look at the statistics, golfers are, say in polls that they are willing to say 85% willing to sacrifice some level of golf course landscape perfection to save water and prevent groundwater pollution. That was a survey question. And we're seeing similar questions uh, with regard to uh, less manicured conditions to minimize use of pesticides. The percentage majority of, of golfers, 64%, say, yes, that's the direction we want to go in. So I think the, the understanding is evolving. It's there. It's, it's a question now of putting this in practice, sure. adopting these practices, and basically saying no to some of the practices that have been used historically, in the, uh, and in that the are past. Sure. We're finding increasingly unnecessary. Well, you know, one of the biggest incentives for change, Jay, I don't have to tell you, is the threat of litigation. So uh, yeah. if, if some of this, uh, if some of the use of these pesticides are going to cause potential litigation for these clubs, just like they did in the gender issues around clubs, uh, you, you seem to see uh, behavior change. And, and yeah. I think that's what we may be seeing down the road. Well, Jay, listen, thank you very much. It's been a very fascinating uh, discussion here today. Uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, our website's uh, www.beyondpesticides, with an S, B-E-Y-O-N-D, pesticides.org, beyondpesticides.org. And our phone is 202-543-5450. Well, I think one of the things you've taught us today, Jay, is uh, as I've seen this practice many times on golf courses when people pick up their balls and sometimes they'll touch it with their hands and they're, they're, sometimes they even lick, lick the, uh, oh, the, right. the, the uh, debris off. I think people will be a lot more careful as they go, uh, go forward. Yeah. Well, listen, Jay, thank you very much. And listen, if you're a first-time listener, please know that every Ringler Radio Show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. So, Jay, thanks again for uh, sharing your uh, expertise with us. And for the rest of you, go out and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. 
Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential. 